Today on an all-new episode of the Enneagram Journey. Is your dad home, Cal? We need to talk to a lawyer. Mr. Bavlasky? They're going to try and make us go back to school. Yo, you could be spreading germs. Maybe you didn't hear me, Kyle. They want us to go back to school. So? So? You really want to go back to that slavery? I want an education. I want to be able to compete for a job when I'm older. You crazy, psychotic... Cal, we need to get a lawyer to stop schools from forcing us back. What's with the kid wearing a cummerbund? I let him wear whatever he wants to wear. This is like a whole new school of child raising I'm doing. You give the kid options instead of orders, you know? Let him make the right decision. You're a pioneer. So, Julian, what do you want to do tomorrow? I want to go to school. Look at that. I don't force him. He makes the right decision. Way to go, kid. Oh, back to school. Back to school. To prove to dad that I'm not a fool. I got my lunch packed up, my boots tied tight. I hope I don't get in a fight. Oh, back to school, back to school, back to school. All right, children, welcome back to class. I'm your new teacher, Detective Harris, and this is our homeroom teacher's assistant, Officer Johnson. Let's start the day off with some math. Does anyone understand math? Who would like to lead the class with some math? Let me try. Kids, all right, come on, let's settle down. Now we're gonna do some finger paints, you got that? You're gonna finger paint a marsupial of your choice or a fun thing you did over the summer. You can't make us stay here. This is a violation of our freedom. Who's with me, guys? Now listen, we're gonna start finger painting right now. Oh my God, I forgot how much it sucks to be around everybody. I think I'm gonna be sick. That's what I go to school for. It's a real war. You can call me crazy. She is so amazing. That's what I go to school for. A special back-to-school episode of the Enneagram Journey, and you can't have a special back-to-school episode of the Enneagram Journey without the Enneagram parents, Joey and Billy Shuey. You can find them on social media at Enneagram Parents. My name is Joel, of course Suzanne is going to be here, and they're going to teach us about kids from a stance perspective, help us parents from a triad perspective. And listeners of the show will recognize that this episode is a little bit longer than usual, and that's just because it is packed with great knowledge and wisdom, and we have already got it on the books for like a part two to be recorded later. A couple of podcast updates. Like you, the listener, we want some good routine around when episodes will be released. So exciting news. Y'all probably know I'm a huge fan of radio. Shout out to the ticket. A tip of the cap to radio as we're going to release new episodes never recycled on the 8th the 8th the 18th and the 28th of every month you can expect a fresh show also be sure and stick around at the end of each episode for a preview of the next before we get to today's episode it's plug time 2023 anagram boot camp was absolutely incredible if you didn't get to participate the replay of the weekend's teaching is available and will remain up and available through the end of the year Click on the link in the show notes or visit lifeinthetrinityministry.com 
or SuzanneStabile.com, and you'll easily be able to navigate to the right page and purchase the replay of all three days teaching. 2023 Andy Graham Boot Camp, Naming and Navigating. How are you going to get out of the roundabout? While you're on the website, go ahead and scroll down and check out the 2024 cohort programs and dates. August is the final month to apply for the Anagram cohort, the contemplative cohort, the family systems cohort, and the deconstruction reconstruction cohort. You will find all of the important information on the website, the dates, expectations, descriptions, and the oh-so-important application. September 1 is the final day to apply. Click on the link in the show notes or visit lifeinthetrinityministry.com backslash 2024 cohorts. As always, thank you for listening and for your support of the podcast and of Life in the Trinity Ministry. Leave a review and a rating and share it with your friends, family, and community. And now, let's let the Anagram Godmother and the Anagram Parents take us to school. Everything that has happened so far uh, just reminded me that I'm going to understand about one-fourth of the conversation between the three of you. <laughs> it's like, I don't know. They make a lot of, of ticket references that, that you don't get. I do not get. This one was golf. Yep. I got the master's part. I did, too. I figured that out, but I didn't know who he was till then. But, yeah, we are with Joe and Billy Shuey. You all know who they are, uh, but I bet they'll catch you up to speed if they're new to you. And thank y'all. One, thank y'all for coming in today. I sent a text. I was like, hey, uh, two questions. One, would y'all want to do this? And guess what? Do you want to do it tomorrow? <laughs> um, reply said yes to one and two. I was like, awesome. Crushed it. Yep. Fire away. Welcome. How are y'all doing? How are things going? How's been? How's the summer been? Summer's been great. I think um, Billy has the most exciting update from the beginning of the summer. I got a doctorate in education and I wrote about the Enneagram. Back to you. Such a nine. Yeah. I, I should really be calling you Dr. Shuey more. I'm going to work on that. I forget somehow. A lot of productive doing from you as a nine. That's right. And the rest of the time we were chasing around our boys. Yeah. Very sports and travel and whatnot. And those of us in this room went to the treatise. It's a treatise, for those of you who don't know, when you get your doctorate and education. It's not a dissertation. So... His treatise was on Enneagram edu- and education, and we were able to be at the proposal, and that was pretty awesome. It, it was, was eye-opening. It was eye-opening. It was so awesome, and we need to, I think we get lost in uh, congratulating you. I mean, I don't I don't want to negate that. <laughs> your presence been, does matter. I think we've been doing that a little too much lately. Because your presence matters so much, but uh, what I want to talk about is the fact that as far as I know, you have just offered the Enneagram community empirical evidence when compared to other empirical evidence that suggests that the Enneagram is really great and that you can prove it. And that, I think, is the step that had to be taken for everybody, for Enneagram wisdom to be taught in schools for the particular use of education. So it's not just that you got a doctorate, but... And it's not just that it's in the Enneagram. It's a game changer for using the Enneagram with children and in relationship to education. And that's a huge deal because you can't get in unless you have... Get some cred. And you get the cred by doing the work you did for the treatise slash dissertation. Thank you. It's good for all of us. 
Can we use this example of you and Enneagram 9 getting your doctorate? To Can you talk some about what was hard as a 9 getting that done? We've got a question earlier about a 9 and energy levels and the story of Jenny talking to you all about I want to get my master's, and but I, I know I won't do it unless I tell you all. And so many other people who are nines that don't ever get the doctorate that they wanted or the master's, mm-hmm. or it doesn't have to be in this education funnel, but whatever it may be, that don't ever visit New York or something. I don't know. Yeah, I'll, I'll talk about that. I think for me, I don't know if this is true of nines. Uh, I say that a lot, but I tapped into and do from time to time three in a secure space to kind of write down or just kind of keep to myself goals that I do have for myself. And this was one of them for me. I was in the right place at the right time uh, to join the program. And it seemed like something important. It seemed like something relevant for me, although I didn't write down specifically what I was going to do with that. But it felt right like it was the thing to do, and I wanted to see that through. And there were lots of times throughout where it was really difficult to keep going. There were lots of places where I thought, I could just quit, and it's not going to be that big of a deal, but it was important to keep going. And the part for me to see it from beginning to end was to find specific ways to keep my energy levels up. I know that sounds kind of whatever, but for me, it's, it's literal intentional ways of keeping my energy up. So focusing on sleep and focusing on eating properly and drinking lots of water and exercising. And again, I know that sounds kind of trite and cheesy, but it really does keep my literal energy levels up so that it allows me the opportunity to do the things that are mine to do and the things that I know that I should do because I want to because they're important to me. Can I ask you a question about that? Yes. I've never thought about this before, but when you said I knew I wanted to do this, even though I didn't know what I was going to do with doing this, do you think the prospect of having to do a big thing and then having to do something with the big thing keeps nines from doing the first big thing. <laughs> I'm sorry. That was very confusing language. So you mean something that I want to get finished, getting in the way of some things that I need to get finished? I know what you're asking. Cause oh. I thought the same thing. Oh. Yeah. Oh. It's not knowing the why does that keep you from doing not, not knowing what you're going to, like you said, I don't. And people ask you, People have been asking Billy, great, Dr. Shuey, what are you going to do now? I mean, you got this surely to do something with it, and that's not nine space. Right. So Okay, so to answer your question, uh, no. Because if I get to a place where I want to do something, because that doesn't happen that much, mm-hmm. I'm going to do it. Determination. Mm-hmm. I just am. Because I don't have a very long list of things that I really, really want to do. Mm-hmm. And so everything that's on that list is going to get done, even if I don't know the why specifically. I would like it if I could do both. Yeah, sure. Know the why of why I'm wanting to do something. It might keep the rest of us, that reality might keep the rest of us from adequately supporting them. Yes. Especially if you're a parent of a nine. Like if you're a parent of a nine and the nine says, I want to do this, 
what is your question? And it's daunting and big. The parent's question is, why? Like, why do you want to do this? Well, I just want to do it. What are you going to do with it after? Well, maybe that needs to stop for parents, too, exactly. to support that. That's really yeah. a good point. And, the, the, and also, looking at it from the opposite direction, I can imagine Joe, Daddy, the Reverend, <laughs> I can imagine him thinking, if I do this... People are going to expect me to do this, so I'm not going to do this. Sure. How much doing is going to be required? Do I get to do this and stop? Or if I do this, will the in Joe's case, will the church ask me then to do yeah. this, and I don't want to do this? That's how I had your question. was like, okay, if I do this, then I've got to do this. I do that, except not with doing, sometimes with doing, but more in relationships. If I say this thing, is a five-minute conversation going to follow? <laughs> If yeah. I if I say this, what will happen here? If if I do this, yeah. what will be the consequences of that? I have a great example from our life just right now. From this past summer, our son Sam plays lacrosse. And he plays select lacrosse. And we've gotten to know, he's been with the select team for a while, and we've gotten to know the parents and the families. And there's a defender on his team who um, has been a deep hole for all, all their time playing together the last five years. And at one of the tournaments we were at toward the end of summer, we lost our face-off guy to a broken wrist. So we just needed some help at face-off. Well, Mac, who is, we've his parents are all in <laughs> to Enneagram and talk with us all the time because Mac is a nine and he has a three and a six for, for parents. And so <laughs> the nine says, I mean, without saying anything to the parents, he jumps in to help with face-offs. Well, his mom, the three, got all worked up because she jumped to what is this going to mean? Like, do I, is he changing? Do I get, is this more cost for polls? Is this more this? Do I need to get him all these things? And Mac just wanted to jump in for that time to do face off. And he's fine without doing face off after that. But I think we, it's like the rest of us confuse that and exacerbate that for nines. And they're like, you know what? (laughs) Yeah. I give up. I, I wasn't that important. For you as an eight spouse, was that what you just talked about? You know, if it was a nine kid, yeah, was that challenging a little bit for you or a lot with, you know, because the teaching with eights of if you're going to do something or whatever and you want them to be cheerleader, you got to be as into it as they are. So I can see you as an eight. This might not be what happened. It's a, but yeah. you as an eight being like, cool, what are we going to do with the doctorate? And what's let's yeah. do this and the things. And Billy's like, I don't have those answers. How did that play out? Did that even play out? So it did not play out in that way. What we have been talking about recently is we just had this conversation. I've said for years after living with a nine and being married to one for 21 years that um, I think it's hard for nines, fours, fives, and nines, but really nines because it's so obvious to the rest of us when you're not doing. Like the cycle of being productive and getting stuff done and accomplishing, um, the, the opposite of that is so glaring. And what I've noticed with Billy that I acknowledged and we discussed is I think since COVID, he hasn't cycled down into the depths, the noticeable depths of nine Um, inertia the body at rest stays at rest and so what I applaud in him is he's staying busy when Billy describes and that's that's 
what connects to my eight. When Billy describes um, the eating right and the drinking fluids and this, you know, getting good sleep, all of that, what he's not saying is that requires for him sticking to the routine no matter what. And it's pretty awesome to watch. It's like he gains some energy from the base, what, what you call baseline doing. And if you'll describe, that's a great yeah, term. And what I stumbled onto years ago is, I don't know if this is true. I'm going to stop saying that. For if all this nines. this is true for all nines or just me, we'll just, I'm going to throw it out there. This is what I do. It's like an on-ramp. The more minuscule chores that I do, like little things that have to be done, but they aren't really important in the grand scheme of things. If I can stack one of those on top of the other, then it's like the next thing I know I'm able to do the important things that are on my to-do list or my task list. Whereas if I just kind of wake up and cold Turkey, try to do something really big that that just doesn't work well for me. You know, if I have to, if there's a big project at work, but before work, I worked out and ate a good breakfast and did a little laundry and picked up the kitchen and took the dog for a walk or whatever, then I'm, I'm warmed up to do bigger things, I guess. Mm, absolutely. And so I just trick myself into none, those things just never stop. And if I never stop doing those things, then I never stop. So and that goes all the way back to basic Enneagram teaching, which is a body in motion stays in motion and a body at rest stays at rest. Yeah. It's because I know show. myself, I will win against anybody at a do nothing contest. I can do nothing better than anyone. And if I stop, then I, I feel myself stopping for longer. And then that becomes kind of contagious. And then the next thing you know, I haven't done anything for days. I just can't go and back. It's there. harder to get out of that. Yeah. 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 I wish Joe was here because he, from 14 on, got up and had the routine that established his baseline and he wasn't in charge of it. It was there for him. And when we got married and then we're all of a sudden a big family and that routine didn't work. He tried to force things and times like we're all going to eat dinner together. And you know, he forces things like, I think it'd be really great if we could yeah, eat dinner forces together. A yeah, word. that's a big word. <laughs> But he wanted it. He kept talking about it until we got it. And I think he was looking for what you're talking about, but we didn't know the Enneagram, and he didn't know that. He just was looking for a way for things to be ordered and for all the things to get done. And the thing he knew to do to start the day was to pray, to do morning prayers, but it was the divine hours this much for every quarter, and I hated it. And that was a big conflict for us. And it was all or nothing. It was either we do it every day or we don't do it at all. After we got a rhythm as a family where parts of those could be adapted or allowed to let go, then he was, in, he was just in much better shape to do other, all the other things that had to be done. And I think your idea and your way of talking about the ramp and the baseline is priceless for nines. And I'll tell you one other way in which that helps for nines, I think, is <clears throat> as a, a parent, and then if you 
manage people at work, there's this thought in my mind where I can't, I can't tell, I don't feel comfortable telling anybody else what to do Mm -hmm. if I myself am not going as hard and as fast as I can. And I know that sounds silly as a parent, like it's your job to help guide your kids. So tell them what to do. But I still feel that way about my own children. Like I, how am I expecting them to pick up their room and clean up after themselves and help with the yard if I'm not doing any of those things? And how am I going to tell a person that I supervise at work all the things that they need to do if I'm not doing all those things and probably a little bit more also? That's just another way of seeing as well, I think. Uh, and I just want to say I think a little touch of that is Billy, Dr. Billy Shuey integrity. Well, I think nines, for the most part, have integrity. I would I like th- to think that. Yeah, I think, I think so too. And so, you are able to verbalize yours. And I'm just going to real quick put a caveat that that one little people watching will get to experience it and watch this. That'll be removed from the podcast just because the other eight numbers will be like, where does this guy get off? Like sixes don't for the most part have integrity. Oh yeah. And sevens for the most part. Right. Don't have Sorry uh, about that. Everybody. No, I'm just, just letting, <laughs> letting you know what I deal with here. That, uh, gotcha. <laughs> nines like all numbers, I would like to think have integrity. I, I want to answer one more piece of the question about nines. How do you motivate nines, especially from a parent standpoint? Um, but broaden it to your stance because so much of what we do in Enneagram and parenting is, Um, stance focused and I think um, routine is important to establish and have for um, all fours fives and nines I think that's super important but that's only step one Uh, we stumbled upon this Joel I don't know if you remember or if you Billy we were together uh, in a in a live stream in a COVID live stream we did when I was talking about as a and as an eight, and Joel, you're a seven. I believe that what causes threes, sevens, and eights stress ultimately, because we have high stress thresholds, because we can stand independent from what's happening, is our own feelings that we have not processed for ourselves, right? And, you know, for you as a seven, you just reframe it. Threes, set them aside. And eights, I mask almost every possible emotion with anger when I'm not being healthy because. That's energy providing for me, right? Like I joke, but why be sad when you can be angry? Like I think (laughs) eights totally get that. And what we've stumbled onto, we were talking about, so we, I just brought in that independent or aggressive stance, three, seven, eight. We were actually started by talking about the verbal processing that's so noticeable with ones, twos, and sixes. In that Noticeable dependent, is a nice word instead thank of you. annoying. And thank that you. dependent or responsive stance, so prevalent with ones, twos, and sixes. <laughs> and it is. I mean, it, it's just more noticeable um, when you're thinking out loud. So your kids who who need to talk through their thinking, that's very obvious. And what we we're saying is, give them space to do that because, man, when you interrupt a one, two, or six. You're, you're stopping more than words. You're stopping that train of thought. So if you can have the patience to set that space, set the table for your ones, twos, and sixes to verbally process thinking, they'll be able to bring it up. Well, then we got there, take that same focus to three, sevens, and eights. And you and I both realized we were at a point in our lives where we weren't okay. And it wasn't until <laughs> we started talking out loud with someone, right? 
that we got to, oh, that is that, that's the feeling I'm having. Like that's the actual emotion that I reframed or set aside or, you know, substituted anger for. It doesn't change for fours, fives, and nines. I think routine is important for these children of all ages, but what's super important when you want to support them in doing is giving them the space to verbalize a plan. And that's huge. And I would say a lot of, if we looked back even with you at Billy finishing his doctorate, was me, Will, Sam, as a family, giving him space to verbalize, you know what, this is, this is my plan for finishing. It's important. It feels like commitment, too, for um, the withdrawing stance to verbalize something. Because it means I'm going to do this. Yep. Other people know now. Right. So I can ask for help, and they're going to support me, or they're going to know if I don't do it, Right. depending on which motivates you. It's the accountability of that fours, fives, and nines yeah. need. And we couldn't have just said to Jenny, okay, great, we'll hold you accountable. Yeah. We had to say, what's your plan? When are you going to register for class? Right. And let her get to that. Yeah, and I think you had to say it more, like more than one time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So when are you going to do that? And back to parenting, there's a difference if you say that and if I say that. Sure. When Billy finished talking about getting the doctorate and a word that you said, you said determined. In your teaching, Suzanne, you talk about nines being the most stubborn number. Are we, are y'all saying the same two things? So determine, determination from my standpoint comes from the work that I'm doing in corporate America because when you talk about eights, nines, and ones in the anger or gut triad, it's, um, it kind of puts up uh, a natural wall, especially for eights, nines, and ones who are bosses. Like ones don't want their um, the people they manage to know that they're motivated by anger. <laughs> there's you know there there's some anxiety around that, and so when I got to determination, I think that's when I say eights, nines, and ones are all fueled by anger. I know that Billy knows that ones know that, but when you're trying to explain that to other people, the better term I found fuel that what for what fuels us is determination so it's definitely a nine thing I think it's I I know it is an eight thing sure. and if we had a one here I think they would say the same it absolutely is part of what is happening right now in the world and in this room is the Enneagram is being expanded and used in places where it hasn't been used before in education and in corporate America you're my kid, and I'm proud of you all the time, but this is a bigger thing than that. <laughs> Professionally, you have very carefully chosen words that don't take away from the original meaning of the Enneagram teaching, and determination is one of those words. And it doesn't, it doesn't take away from that. If you have a child who's really stubborn, it would be better for the child and better for the child's teachers and all the people who hear it to use the word determined because it has a positive and a negative connotation and stubborn does not. And so I think that what's happening in expanding and taking the world, the, taking the Enneagram into the world without 
spiritual language, but teaching the same concepts that are spiritual by nature is what's supposed to be happening with the Enneagram in 2023. Agreed. All right. Well, that, that was a good little opener. Good intro. And now we're in the thick of it. So first off, Joey and Billy, what year are your boys going into? We have two high schoolers now. We have a senior and a freshman. Okay. And Suzanne, you have sent four through the gamut. Gamut? Is that the name of that thing? Gambit? I don't know. Uh, so first question is about this year for the two of you as parents. What is the summer's about over? Like what's going on? What's the biggest struggles right now? What is different this year than past years? You're on. Okay. So when we're coming to do a podcast on Enneagram and Parenting, inevitably you start thinking about, okay, what's been happening in our parenting journey, right? And I have to say this is a reminder that if you can apply this to parenting, it will make a world of difference because Will Shuey, our four, who is a senior, has learned how to be productive and he does it pretty regularly. And I think he does it with the ease that other fours may not have for two reasons. He has his withdrawing father who is showing him that it can be done consistently. Second, we understand him. And that's what fours need is to be understood. And so we get to this very special place where he's going to leave us. Um, like all kids should. I'm, I think about, I was so excited to go off to college and he's, he's great and he's going to be ready. So, so will, it's been more than, you know, man, you got a calm app where, where are you applying? How, you know, it's, it's the, the touches in on what he's getting he done to prepare for that. For our seven, you know, we say sevens, the aggressive stance, the three, sevens, and eights, they all need to bring up feeling. That's not always simple to foster in your child, especially if you are <laughs> a feeling last parent. So when I look at what we've dealt with with Sam the most recently, as he makes this journey into high school, it's less about be more emotional, have more feelings, and more about we are consistently working with him on his awareness of other people. And so I think three, sevens, and eights, yeah, we need to bring up feeling. But what we really need to work on is our awareness of other people. As a seven, I think I know exactly what you're saying. Can you talk more about that, though? Sure. It's don't leave, you know, uh, when you go from one thing to the next, don't leave a mess behind you for someone else. Be aware of. Like our language for Sam is, Will's about to go to college. You're four years from that, but you're going to have a roommate. And your roommate's not going to like living with you because you can be kind of messy. You know, you need to be aware of that. When you um, eat in the kitchen, clean up after yourself. Don't be aware that someone else is coming behind you to do it. Don't have us do that. A, for a seven specifically, he's so anticipatory. My, you know, my language, if, if I'm going to just bring that full circle, my language for eights, nines, and ones is that they're fueled, that mom mentioned the new language, that they're fueled by determination. My language for twos, threes, and fours is that they're fueled by comparison. 
my language for five, sixes, and seven is, is what fuels you is anticipation. So it's a, it, it, fear can be part of that, but man, it's all about anticipating. And sevens, Joel, you know this, <laughs> you're in the thing. You're in the thing, doing the thing that you wanted to do, and it's so great. And while you're in that thing, you're looking at us saying, what's next? Because where your reference is, is the future, and what fuels you is anticipation. And that can get... If you're not careful as a parent and you don't know that that's your kid's motivation, you can really beat them down with, we're doing this thing now, why are you asking, right? Is it ever going to be enough? That kind of thing. There's, a, there's another way to, to respond to that, I think. Anything you want to throw on that? No, I think Joey hit it pretty much on the head. Just a couple of things that I thought of while you were talking about it with, um, with Sam um, you came up with this term and it's brain health, someone else. So every day, what are you doing for your brain? What are you doing for your health? What are you doing for someone else? And the someone else sometimes is as simple as just taking care of yourself so that other people in your home don't have to clean up after you. And sometimes it's things last week where he goes on a mission trip and actually builds a wheelchair ramp and clears land and does those kinds of things for people that can't do that. Can't go on a mission trip every week, but that's a good thing to continuously have him think back to because I believe sevens just like everybody else feel good doing things for other people but there are certain numbers who just think of self first not in a selfish way but just what's gonna what am I gonna do to be fun today but oh yeah there's this other half of life where I got it I have to do some things so the brain health someone else that was that was really good we've We've stuck to that pretty well. And we tied that to, if the more specific piece of that is, we tied that to him having his screen. Like, you don't get to start your day on your phone um, as a rising freshman. You're, it's in our room, and you don't get it until you've done something for your brain, something for your health, and something for someone else. We're trying to instill <laughs> that routine in him. And the anticipatory regulation, uh, a way to help with that is to lay out the plan. So we're going to do this and then we're going to do that. And then there isn't anything else after that. So while we're in the thing and you're looking to the next thing, there is no more next thing. Like that's the end of it for now until you focus on your brain and focus on your health and focus on someone else. And then the cycle can go back. We're trying to dump on all of these catchphrases that we hope are pressing the right buttons. Another one being work hard, play hard. I found myself over and over when we're dealing with we're going through a rough patch with Sam in the school year using the language you can have it all because that's that sounds pretty good I would imagine to a seven it sounds great and what I'm what I mean by that is if you want to in a given day be on your phone for two hours eat some junk food watch a movie cool and you have to pick up after yourself and you have to eat something healthy and you have to work on your lacrosse game and you have to read and you have to study and you have to sleep at some point too, but you can have it all. You just, here's what all looks like. Mm -hmm. The thing that I think is so important about everything y'all just said is we keep talking about the Enneagram being one tool, but not the only tool. And we often talk about the fact that some people don't have any tools. 
And so they're just in this, what am I going to do with this child? And they're so different, and I don't know what to do with them, and I don't have any tools. The thing I'm building up to is, and having the Enneagram as a tool leads to creating other tools that are helpful for you and for your kids. And it's not a, okay, I'm here now. It's, I kind of am grasping the Enneagram. Now what does that mean? And what you guys do with Enneagram and parenting is answer that question. Here's what it means. Go back to the original question for you, Suzanne, over the, God, how many years? Yeah, from 78 to 2006? Yeah, having kids go to school. school. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry Sorry to put that out there for people to know about Suzanne. One, so much changes over that stretch. Mm-hmm. So context, of course, can change. Mm-hmm. But what were the hardest years for when school started again in your memory? For us in those years, we were in smaller churches where everybody knew us, everybody knew our kids, and every and many people had comments about expectations for our children and about moments if our children failed to live up to those expectations. And we've been pretty good parents all along. We were pretty good parents before we knew the Enneagram. We certainly are better now. But the thing that we knew had to happen was we had to be prepared emotionally, financially, uh, as a couple, and in terms of scheduling, to be ready for four kids to be in two activities each, for the reality of school supplies and tennis shoes and all of those things. So we had all of those basic things to think about before we could get to think about how to motivate and what we're going to do different for this one than we do for this one. And I think what we did for the least, which was we had one kid who needed a lot of structure, turned out to be good for all. The struggle was that we were in small schools where you were, your younger siblings were compared to you in the school. Uh, Well, Joel doesn't do that. Joey doesn't do that. Jenny doesn't do that. You know, moving that up. And um, we had the gifts to figure out how to distinguish all four of you from one another. And we worked with two questions. Which one needs me the most right now? And which one of us has what that one needs? And we had that talk probably 10 times a week. I was talking with somebody recently. I think it was, I think it was my friend Brad Otts who's been on the podcast. And I just commented to him. I, I, don't, I think we're just talking about kids getting ready to go back to school and what's going on. He asked me a question. My answer was like, I, I liked it, the places that I went because when I was a freshman in high school, Jenny was a senior, and I liked that. I liked having a lot of stuff already laid out. There mm-hmm. were her friends that were nice to me. There were people that were jackasses to me also, but like there was a good that was a good deal. Then I get to Hendrix, where all three of you had been. And that really worked out well for me. I mean, that aspect. <laughs> um, and I I just remember really, I had the joke in my head when you were talking 
that, you know, when he's like, oh, well, Joey did this, Joel did this. So that I, I had to make it a little bit easier for BJ after I lowered the bar from <laughs> what Joey and Jenny did. The most consistent question we get through DMs is, where's the test? What test is out there for my kid? How can I find that? And, you know, it's so, it's a question we get so often that I literally have a cut and paste response, you know, that ultimately says there is no test, especially for children. And we believe that it's clear in there when they reach double digits, but it can't be something their specific type, but it can't be something that you figure out without them because it's their motivation and not yours. And it's all about observing, observing, and you, there's no quick answer. I don't remember where I heard it, but I heard someone say one time, Enneagram, I like tool, but I, the way saying Enneagram is a tool, cause it is, but someone said Enneagram is not a test. It's an experience. And I like that. I, do too. I think Enneagram is, it's a, it's not a test. It's an experience. It's such a downer for people when you tell them there's not a test. Oh yeah. It's like, oh, no. Well, then I'll never know my number. But then I send them, if you will just go here, here, and here exactly. on our account, we will go through stances. Yeah. Because you, we think that's what you can identify early on as stances. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> and I understand that, too, because we live in that world sure, where the faster something is and the easier something is, the better, and you can do more things. But it's been my experience that the longer something takes and the more difficult it is, the bigger the payoff and we had somebody in a group that we taught a while back that said, after we had talked through anti-gram and parenting and things to look for and ways to help them, he pretty much said, well, how am I going to do this? And, and the only thing I could think of was, well, you love your kids and you'll do anything for them. And everybody has enough hours in the day to do the things that they make important. So if that's really important to you, then you will spend the time on it. And if it's not, you won't. And that's okay. How about we go through then through the stances and then however y'all want to break it down. If you want to do number by number question, number one, your advice for kids struggling to transition from summer to school starting. That's one of the questions I was kind of thinking to myself, like, cause it's a transition and, um, by stance, I think for three sevens and eights who, at the end of the day, what we share is our love of activity. Like threes and eights are processing with doing and sevens with thinking, but you do second. Like we all love to do and be active. So transition to school is pretty easy for three, sevens, and eights. Ones, twos, and sixes who are in that dependent stance, um, man, we've all said at different times, ones, twos, and sixes play school really well. So, so going back to school is great because someone other than your family is going to affirm you for doing the right thing and following the rules. And, and, and that's a great space for ones, twos, and sixes. So I think they're really excited to get back. I'll Fours, four, fives, and nines. nines. I want to say my thought for you, because uh, Billy, I'm so aware that Billy as a nine, and, and I, I'm not sure if this is true for all nines, but most nines pretty much say being around others gives them energy that they can't get on their own. So I think nines have it a little different from fours and fives when it comes to getting ready to go back to school. Um, but for all three of you, for sure, I think it's the toughest because it's so, it's, it's outside pressure to your doing and it's taking your energy. That's, and you have the, 
the least energy on the Enneagram. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I think it's the most difficult for fours, fives, and nines because of the energy consumption. And it's also a routine changeup. That's mm-hmm. that's tough to shift gears for fours, fives, and nines because now you're having to do something different than what you had to do. Um, and our orientation of time is the past. And so I remember when school started and there's all the excitement, I always thought about all the things I did during the summer <laughs> instead of being in the present or thinking about what I was going to accomplish that school year. So I think it's it's a tough transition for them or can be. Do you think that's a time <clears throat> that's pretty glaring, uh, our orientation to time, the start of school? Because what made me think about that, this question, Billy, is, you know, you're talking about reflecting on the summer. Mm-hmm. At the start of school, I'm thinking about the basketball season and how great it will be for this. And and I'm th- thinking about those things. Could you see that? And y'all have both been teachers and administrate. All three of you have been faculty and teachers. Is that something that is pretty prevalent or that you can see from the outside looking in? I think what I see more than orientation to time is location of reference point which is also stance specific so ones twos and sixes reference point is external it's outside of them that's where the term dependent came from for their stance and inevitably the start of school is going to increase anxiety levels when your reference point goes from being outside of the familiar at home to outside of you with a much larger um, environment um, with, with so many more places for your reference point to go. Uh, three, sevens, and eights. Can I say one thing yeah, for you? Sure. There? I think belonging is such an important thing for all kids, but for ones, twos, and sixes, yeah. it's belonging to a group day one. Yeah. And the anxiety that goes with that and the temptation to not be yourself when you've been able to be yourself as a kid all summer, I think that's a huge thing for that group of people who are relying on how other people are going to respond to them and make space for them in the moment. So that's bringing back in orientation to time. It's, I can't, I can't, Joel, you and I can rest on, ah, we'll make friends. We'll figure it out. But a one, two or six is like, no, I need, I need this figured out and answered for me today because this is where my reference point is. And yesterday I planned what I would wear and who I'm going to have lunch with so that I would have a safe place to be where I could look around and see that I'm okay. No internal sense of that at all. As we keep going on, let's make our reference point the microphone, too. You want the microphone to be my reference point. That was a lovely way for you to handle that. Okay. Let me readjust then. Okay. So anything, Billy, on ones, twos, and sixes? Because we're talking about... I, I, my language I like to remind people is, regardless of where the hard statistical data is on how many people are, you know, are each type in the world... You can say, I know people say half the world are sixes. Well, you can say with with a very high degree of certainty that half the world are the dependent stance. So do you have any any thoughts just from your years as an educator talking about dependent stance from the parent perspective or the? You guys talked about anxiety. That was the first thing that I thought of um, because there's a lot of new. So there will be lots of questions and lots of scenarios drummed up in internally on what the school year will be like. Will I like my teachers? Will I have a group of friends? Will there be a community of people that I, that are like-minded that I can glom onto that I can be with that will support me. 
things that I can do for them and all these tasks that need to be accomplished. Like there's just a, a lot of new and, um, uh, surrounding the school year. And I, and that's anxiety inducing for dependent stance numbers, I would imagine. So, and, and I think that's why, um, not, that's not why, but it is a reason why, um, you know, good educational practice is establishing routines and procedures early on. What are we going to do when this happens and drilling that home from kindergarten all the way through 12th grade, because it puts kids' minds at ease. And I think, you know, ones and sixes and, and to a degree twos as well can thrive on that, that comfort and security and knowing how things are going to go at least a little bit when they're in their classrooms. Uh, yeah. I don't know if this is going to be helpful or if it's just me talking. So what if you can stop me in the middle, if it's just me talking, but I, as a dependent to Came to SMU, uh, I graduated from high school in three and a half years, and so I came at the semester. And they put me in a room in a dorm with, that had three beds with two seniors, and they were each in a uh, sorority. So it's second semester, two seniors, they're each in a sorority. I'm new on campus. There are no, here's how you get to know people, come to this, here's a, what's it? And that reality changed my life. Now, there's two sides to everything. And it meant that college life for me was not a thing because there was no way for me to get at a school like SMU. You can't find your way in. I, I played intramural ball and then I played basketball and volleyball for SMU. And so I, I, I found a team to be part of, but I didn't find a way to be in with people that you want to get together with years after like y'all did and so the thing that saved me was carolyn my best friend since then and my opportunity to get off campus so i got an education but i built a community over here because i had to have one to thrive and it was bishop lynch high school where i was teaching and coaching and and what i'm worried about in terms of my grandchildren who are in the dependent stance always is do you have do you have people and that's what BJ struggled with the most. And his siblings were not having that struggle. And so it's hard to know what to do with that. I think being in the dependent stance as a child comes with its own problems. We say about ones, just in general Enneagram knowledge, it, it's true for children as well as adults, that they're never angry with what they're angry with. Yep. Would you say as a dependent stance person, because this is something I've just now thinking of when we're talking about our children one thing we do talk about and are aware of when we're when we're saying things about the children in the dependent stance is they're going to be your most emotional they're going to react emotionally do you think that you can take that reality with ones and broaden it to this stance to say when your one two or six comes home and they're upset what they're saying they're upset about is likely not what they're really upset about absolutely didn't did even to the point of if we go to the parenting side didn't you two find that I was upset with you about something it wasn't about but it wasn't about that thing it was about something else so how from a being the dependent number in the room how from a parenting standpoint can you get to what the real issue is 
somehow my one in five parents got there, but it felt like I was being ignored. Not ignored in a in a mean spirited way, but like they were busy doing other stuff. I had to figure it out because that's how I brought up thinking. That's all looking back, though. And I think there's a, a limit to how much verbal processing people should listen to. Because if I keep talking, I get worse, not better. True. You know, I start talking, and there's a place where it's a, where it should stop. And if somebody doesn't stop me, then I it gets worse again. Yeah, you work yourself into it again. Yeah. Well, I think that's got to be important in all of this with your ones, twos, and sixes going back to school, that when they're going to come home upset, some of us are a little quicker to react than others. You may not be reacting to what the actual catalyst is for the the anxiety and the emotion. And the thing I would say over and over and over is... At 72, y'all, I don't know what I think until I verbally get myself there. That, that's the only way I know how to connect to my thinking. And so for kids, that's got to be true. And it's real easy if you think about a third grader to not pay attention to what they're saying. Yeah. And you have to, or you can't help them get to what they're thinking. And that's where the answer lies because they find balance there. Is it possible kind of using what Billy was talking about earlier as the nine, you know, all these other things to help the productive doing? You'll talk about with one specifically, but I think it's probably true for the whole stance, and correct me if I'm wrong, the importance of reviewing the day, going over, being able to unload that. If that is a practice that happens every day of, okay, what, or as often as you can, of what happened today, the good and the bad. Like where then in my overly thinking head, maybe this is me anticipating trying to head off <laughs> <laughs> head off the, the future part of this. But would that lend to there being less uh, boiling pot moments of blow up over something, but it's not even the thing? Yeah. Well, yes, and and the other thing that I think is important to talk about, and I'd like to hear y'all talk about it, and that's what do you do with children who are sixes, who before school starts in this transition time are are so worried about possible future events that they're worrying about things that probably aren't going to happen, and then what do you do with them when they come home from school for the first two months and they're worried about perceptions and all the things without being dismissive yeah the easy answer for me is um to never patronize always listen and finding ways to affirm helping them affirm from themselves their own thinking that uh, and there's a balance in there somewhere because if they talk for days about possible future events, it would be easy to cut that off because you recognize there's some unproductive thinking in there. But if they trust you enough to verbally dump that on you, knowing that you'll listen and ride that out with them, let them sort of get it out there and then f- gently work them back towards productive thinking in that safe space, that's a good place to, to be as a parent. And the way we say to do that is don't answer for them. 
So when they say, what if, what if, what if, don't say, well, then we'll do this, then we'll do this. Maybe give them the first one and then say, well, what do you think if this happens? You're getting them to think for themselves to doubt themselves less, ultimately. That they have it in them to answer whatever need arises. Yeah. I've always said that it helps sixes if you exacerbate their fear. Don't do it for a child. Exactly. And I never thought of it till just now because I don't do Enneagram and kids. But one thing you can do is... Walk through the plans like y'all were talking yeah. about. And off, say, yeah, don't give them some other crazy thing, but it's also a way to say... Because when you say that to adults, what you're ultimately teaching is, I can go there in my head too. Uh-huh. Right? True. And so maybe the way you do it for kids is you offer another solution. I can go there in my head too, but it's not. Yeah, there is a nuance there for sure. And um, I know y'all have both have an awful lot to do. I wonder if as you go along, you could note uh, things that you need to speak to in parenting that if, you, if you're this number, don't do that. Do this instead. I think there's some nuancing there that, Parents are not going to have because they're going to go with what they were taught without thinking about it and thinking it through and sure. all, all the things. Put a little pin in that for because that we, That's we are that, still yeah. on the dependent stance. Yeah, we need to move question. to a withdrawing. That's I was ready to. So, I do. I just real quick want to throw out a an example of how I know that Sweet Josephine Sue is not a one, two, or six. Every day, you know, you pick up your kids from school. How was your day? What, what did you What did you do today? And for forever, first she would say, I forgot. I don't remember. I forgot. And then she got wise to that, that not working. And now she, if you ask her, she says, I don't want to talk about it. I yeah, just, I'm good. <laughs> simple. I love it. I love it. All right. Sorry. Yes. Next dance. I would make up as a dependent parent that something bad happened. Yeah. That's what I don't want to talk about. It would say to me, just so you know. The reason I want to go to withdrawing next is the other thing I was thinking about this morning was, man, going back to school, there's two sides to everything, right? Going back to school is so great for ones, twos, and sixes for all of the reasons we've already said, but it also creates that, you know, anxiety. Going back to school for fours, fives, and nines is good because it's a, it's a familiar routine, and it's routine, right? And it promotes doing. You have to do. So good in all those ways. And yes, it's a drain on limited energy. But it is also can be a struggle because what we keep saying with fours, fives, and nines is doing last, whether it's an adult or a child, doesn't mean they're not doing. It has nothing to do with not doing. What it is about is <laughs> doing what they want in the order that they like and that they want and picking and choosing. And that goes away in school. Like school is all about outside pressure to your doing. And I want you, Billy, to jump in on the intuitive, stubborn response that fours, fives, and nines all have to outside pressure, to being told what to do, essentially. Yeah, we don't like being told what to do. <laughs> And there's a, there's a lot of that in the world, especially when you're a kid, like there's always somebody telling you what to do. And so that's a, that's a, that was always a wake up call when school started. Cause you're right. It's so much easier to do what you want to do and not as much as what you have to do in the summer, depending upon what you're, what you've got going on as a kid in the summer. 
And then the first day of school, you show up and you have, you can't be late. You got to go to this class first and then that class next. And then you have homework and then you have all of these other things. But you're right. It's, it's both. And it's, I remember when school started, that was a little hit to the routine where it was kind of comfortable and kind of fun doing all the stuff that I wanted to do. Now I have all these responsibilities, but at the same time, it was a new routine, which I thrived on. And then I knew in my head, I've got to do this stuff anyway. So embrace it and move on. Going back to the reference point. So orientation of time is the past reference point is internal. So we move from that external reference point of ones, twos and sixes to this internal reference point for fours, fives and nines. I know because I've been married to you as long as I have that you miss so much. (laughs) Because of your internal reference point. Do you think fours and fives miss stuff as well because of an internal, because some in the middle of class, they'll just pull inside? Yeah. And I, I, I would also imagine it, it, it would, it takes fours, fives and nines a lot longer to meet new people, make new friends. Um, just because we're kind of in the background observing, feeling things out going at a snail's pace. What do y'all think about the uniqueness of fours and fives and the cost of that in elementary school and middle school that nines really don't have to struggle with? And fives in their way are all, they're not as you, they're not as outwardly unique as fours, but fives are unique and they're unique as children and school's costing them a lot. Yeah, I, fours have it pretty rough the younger they are because relationships are everything and they crave that genuineness and authenticity and those words don't resonate with most young kids. They're all about you know, whatever. Depth and meaning doesn't make its way into the conversation so that's it's tougher for fours for sure. Um, it's helped at our house because we've been trying to relay that message to our four for years. And I think now that he's 17, he gets it. Yeah. We knew to say, Hey, guess what, bud? There's not going to be a lot of depth and meaning at the second grade lunch table. So let's just prepare. And it's helped us too along the way, provide space for him to, to more often be able to be himself in a comfortable setting, if that makes sense. So he goes to a smaller school. He's involved in more things. People actually can get to know him because they're just, just on sheer volume alone. Right. So he's been able to, to do that. So if if that's, you know, that can be helpful for parents if you, if you have a four and I imagine in similar ways for a five as well, it's not the same motivation, but fives want a specific, space to do things and they want a, a shorter smaller group of friends yeah. who lots know who of autonomy. really know them yeah with lots yeah. of autonomy and they both understand their need for privacy and they're not go with the flow type kids and so providing similar space for them to be able to do that providing the latitude like we talk about and nines they're a little different in that regard in their own stance because we just kind of show up and go with the flow and we've got some tools to be able to make that happen mm-hmm. um, where we can survive and adapt a little bit easier because we're not looking for the same things. The only thing I would tag onto that is one of my more recent ahas in looking at the, the uniqueness of fours and fives at the bottom of the Enneagram is um, 
two things are happening. You know, fours really represent that heart space and fives really authentically represent that head space. And there's, there's such a chasm mm-hmm. naturally there anyway. The other element that makes them unique from all other children, adults, types is fours are the only number on the Enneagram who have no line to the independent stance. They have no line to three, seven, or eight. So that independence that we can all kind of reach and get at some point in our lives, it's not there for fours. Fives are the only number on the Enneagram who have no line to one, two, or six. They have no line to the responsive stance. And so much of school, surviving in school, (laughs) is a combination of either being able to stand independent from what's happening and not take it so personally, or to be responsive, to to realize that there's something happening outside of you and have this natural response. And I think that... If you, if you funnel down the issues that fours and fives have at school, much of that can be right there. Right there. And, and I think it's such a temptation for parents to try to help their child be more like other children. And that's the worst thing you could do for a four. And for a five, it's, a, an, it's like a five... Even like a fourth grader would think, yeah, I'm not doing that. And they're withdrawing. Yeah. Right. So. So it's hard for teachers to read them and parents when right. they get home. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's hard to read what's going on with an internally referenced person. And it's hard for other kids to read them. Yes. And so fours overextend themselves in trying to tell other children who they are. And fives over withdraw yep. and say, I'm not telling you anything. Right. Absolutely. Three, seven, eight. I mean, we've got it the best. <laughs> but sadly, because of that independent reference point, it's not internal, it's not external, it's wherever we want it to be. Like, what I, when I try to describe that independent reference point for three sevens, and eights, it's the world could be blowing up next to us. And we can choose, we notice it. We can choose to do something about it if we want. But man, we can just as easily stand right next to it and stand independent from it. That is a superpower that ends up totally being our kryptonite. <laughs> yeah, but and, and even hearing that, all I could think of was, man, I'd like some of that. <laughs> yeah, and the thing I'll interject here too is, if you're talking start of school and all that that implies, threes, sevens, and eights, Joey uses this term a lot, and I, I think about it all the time are comfortable in the space that they take up everywhere. Yep. And maybe that's not um, how they feel internally all the time, but to the rest of us, that's how it looks. I never come across a three, a seven, and eight in any setting where they're not just kind of comfortable taking up the space that they have. And the rest of us all have some inner issues going on where we defer or we are dependent upon or whatever, and to a three, seven, or eight, I would imagine the first day of school comes and they're running toward the door, generally speaking. That's such great language. Why? Because, of course, I'm thinking from the dependent stance and the responsive stance. And what's happening over here for those kiddos is, please invite me into your space. I don't know how to get there, and I want to be there. And three, sevens, and eights don't even notice that. We're not aware they, of you. No. We are not personally aware. Right. Or they're the ones saying... <laughs> Come to my space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because this is it. 
Yeah. And I'm good with it. Want to come on in? Come on in. But you don't just get to sit back, parents. I mean, that's, man, the reminder is your fours, fives, and nines are the ones who need the latitude. <laughs> your ones, twos, and sixes need affirmation. You got to be, more, but, but what takes, I think, the most effort on the part of parents is parenting threes, sevens, and eights because they need consistency. And when you look at what school provides for these kids, ones, twos, and sixes are getting two things at school. They're getting that affirmation. They know how to go after that. They know how to get it, and they're getting it. And school, by its very nature, is teaching them objectivity and theory and bringing up thinking, right? Fours, fives, and nines, man, you've got to do it school. Like, it's it's there. It's there for you. Um, I think there's so many elements to school that – uh, teach introspection because of thinking, right, and, and wondering and pondering, so it's there as well. I think after you learn how to play with others in preschool, just the general understanding of what school offers isn't going to be something that three, sevens, and eights need to bring up. That It's not fostering an awareness of others like it does in those, you know, two-year-old, three-year-old, don't take his toy years yeah, after that. Only when you get in trouble. Right. Right. So three, sevens, and eights aren't being challenged to bring up the very thing they need to bring up, I guess is what I'm saying, which is going to go back to the parents. Then you need to continue to do it at home. I'd love to hear y'all run through the numbers <laughs> uh, for parents to hear two things that you think they could do in the first in the two weeks leading up to school, which is now, and the first couple of months, that would be really helpful for their child in that stance or if they think their child is that number. Because we've begun to do some differentiation of the numbers while talking about all of this. I want to throw out, and if you're watching this on the video, you know, just ignore this. That is a phenomenal question. <laughs> I also had a question um, in the chamber and, uh, time wise, either one of these questions is going to be the last question most likely, which means we just get to do it again really, really soon. And maybe really, really soon, just as a part two, we'll just kind of pick up where we left off. Uh, so I'm going to ask my question to the group and then y'all decide, we decide what we have where, time where we're going to go. Sure. Uh, if you could talk to each Enneagram number as parents, for all, if all three of you could do this, regardless of your children's number, number of what it, what do you need to manage as a parent as your child's going back to school, and what do you need to do that is not gonna you will not do intuitively that you need to intentionally find this thing. Well, I hate to take Joel's side. It happens. It's been happening for years. What I love about it is the very thing we say all the time in Enneagram Parenting Ed, and this is not just for you to identify your kid. You can't do this work if you're not doing your own. So I do love the nod to, oh, wait, parents, let's. Yeah, I'm, I Let's agree. talk about you. Yeah. Okay. Let's don't forget my question for the future. It's written. It's written. And seriously, if we're going to do a back to school with y'all that's part two, we need to. Get her done. Agreed. In the We're going back future. to school. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, we can start with twos, right? Yeah. It's our podcast. Okay. Say it again, what I'm supposed to answer. 
So we're it's a two-parter. As a parent that is an Enneagram 2, what is something that you, you need to manage yourself uh, about your behavior towards your kids around them going back to school? And then what is something that you need to do and bring up that isn't intuitive to you that you are going to need to intentionally make a point to do this thing? And as your daughter of 45 years, I have an answer if you're not ready. <laughs> okay, no. <laughs> Um, (laughs) well, I need to manage my feelings about their feelings and their experiences. Number one, like I need to not get in that with feelings. I can get in it with doing and I can get in it with thinking, but not with feelings. And when I feel to this minute, my children's feelings, I want to fix them if they're sad, celebrate them if they're happy, because I feel them too. So that's the thing I have to manage is my own feelings about the feelings of and experiences of my children. Did I get that one right? I think that's very well said. The only other way I would say it is, I think especially when school starts, twos, because you know without stopping to realize and say to myself, I feel what my kid feels. You anticipate what your kid's going to feel, and then you over-involve yourself in forming an experience where they will or won't feel that way. That's all correct. Well, I was pretty good at it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, you can do that well if you're yes. a two. Yeah. And you take away important life experience when you do that. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. You don't have to feel bad about okay. it. Y'all are going to really laugh at me. For this, but I think it's really important, and it, I thought about it several times while Billy was talking. And I don't know about other twos, but I bet they're like me. I'm so into the relational stuff that I don't do the make sure my kids, I'm going to literally say this out loud, have breakfast. Like, I didn't do that. I wasn't good at it. I'm not a morning person. I don't, I didn't, I didn't do that. I didn't pay enough attention to the tangible things that they would need because I was focused on the emotional things too much of the time. So more body things and more tangible things are what I would need to work on. Love it. For time-wise, I want us to stay moving on, but I want us to stay in triad because that's how Billy and I come at it from the parenting standpoint. We say twos, threes, and fours, if you're not careful, you're putting your anxiety in comparison on your kids. Um, so threes, you have the line to it. You want to speak to threes? Yeah. You said that the way that we teach it in Enneagram parenting is, um, well, we, and I know this to be true as a nine, what we most easily project onto our kids, I think is the emotion that's most easily accessible for each of the triads. So for twos and threes and fours, it's that anxiety, shame combination, for five, sixes, and sevens, it's fear. And for eights, nines, and ones, it's it's anger. So for threes who experience um, that uh, anxiety-shame combo, just like twos and fours, it's similar to what you were talking about, Suzanne, I think with respect to feelings, how you kind of pick up the feelings of your child and use that and move on. For threes, it's... Um, sort of projecting the achieving and image seeking and then you negate um, some of the more tangible necessary components of 
you know, of ordinary school life that are important. I mentioned comparison earlier. Yeah. Um, and that's my, the term that I use when I'm teaching in corporate America, um, to, to encapsulate that uneasiness within that two, threes and fours are all dealing with. Well, they're also in the heart triad. So there's an awareness of other people there. And so when you combine, I'm what's inside is kind of messy, but I'm also focused outside of me on other people. Comparison naturally happens. I think three parents, which you tend to rely on in parenting your child, especially in school years, is comparison. Comparing your child to other children and comparing your child's experience to your experience. And you got to watch that. And the sweeping aside of feelings that threes are naturally adept at, if your child isn't a three and they have feelings and they want to express them and need to express them and you stifling that is kind of doing them a disservice in their growth. Yeah, the only thing I would add is I think comparison leads to competition. And that my piece with three specifically is twos, threes, and fours all compare. Threes, you do it competitively. Yep. Like, by nature. Got to be better then. Yep. I think with fours as parents, some of the stuff that we talk about, same, same triad as twos and threes, is feeling inadequate as a parent. A four that I know talked about that all the time. He's a phenomenal parent, but... Because fours tend to think that way or feel that way, they don't always show up to be the best versions of themselves, and that includes parenting, because they feel like there's something missing from their style or ability or whatever. And for four parents out there, you, you're you good enough. You are. Be the best version of yourself because that's what your kid needs. And then to take it a step further, similarly, there's just some mundane components of being a parent, being consistent. Making the lunches, yeah, doing picking all up the food of carpool. the menial tasks that are required. Just embracing those um, because your child, your children need that. And my consistent tap on the shoulder to fours is: there are times, inevitably, in all and the lives of all fours, whether younger or older, where you want your outside world to match the fluctuations that are happening inside. And so you almost create drama that doesn't need to be created or it doesn't even have to be drama. It's just fluctuations. It's just a change from how things are. And I think you need to watch that because regardless of what kid you have, um, school's going to be fluctuating enough. (laughs) So the mundane of home could be good. I think doing the mundane first, which fours don't do, is required in school. And so I think four parents need to really do the mundane themselves, like you were talking, and model that, and then encourage that. Five, six, seven. Why don't you you lead with the story of the five? We love that story. When Joey and I put together some focus groups and we were talking to folks in the LTM community about their thoughts on parenting, um, from their number and from the perspective of Um, what they thought their kids or at least stance they might be in. There was one um, young lady who talked about how she was a seven. No, she was a five and she had a, uh, we're talking about the same different stories. Sorry. Sorry. So the story that comes to my mind is she was married to a five and they had a young daughter. And when he came home from work, young daughter wanted to play with dad. Dad had to retire to his space for a little while. 
and before they came back to the dinner table and then the rest of the evening together. And their language was, daddy's out of people juice right now. <laughs> He's going to refill. Yeah. So that was neat to hear them sort of verbalize the, the need to replenish the battery by being alone. But knowing that that was the process, being able to verbalize it so that it wasn't confusing. Because mm-hmm. I think that happens in homes. You know, the five is exhausted from all of the interactions throughout the day that drain all of the energy sources. And then you come home and you're expected to do it all over again and you just don't have it to give anymore. So you do retire to your space. And if people don't understand the dynamic or what's happening and there's no language to commonly ascribe to it's, well, what's, what's up with dad or what's up with mom? Why do they not like us? What's the problem, right? It's so, like what Suzanne said earlier with, with the, you know, they think it's either depression or yeah. anger or there's something awful happened that day. Yeah. Just need some space. Yeah. And my, my story that I was thinking of was there was an, uh, an older mother um, who had probably a teen, junior high to teen daughter, and um, the daughter was likely in the dependent stance. And she would come home with all and want to talk through her day. And that was very taxing for the five parent. And she said, <laughs> at one point, her daughter says, you know, she's literally halfway through her story and talking. And she says, Mom, I don't think you're listening. Let me start over. <laughs> Oh, that's great. So you fives, yes, um, speak to and be transparent about the time you need to take and space you need to take. But when you have a kid who needs you and needs your attention, it's going to cost you less in the long run to give it to them fully the first time. I'm having a memory that's lovely of my mama, who was a five, and... I never put this together. She intuitively knew to do a lot of things. And my dad was busy, busy as the, sometimes the only doc in town. And um, they both needed a lot of space at the end of the day. And I was, my brothers were older and gone. So I was essentially an only child. And my mom, would. there were these aluminum cup, glasses, cu- aluminum cups that were tall, like, glasses and they were hammered aluminum and literally if they were cold enough your lip would kind of stick to them she had a hand ice crusher that you attached like our microphones are to the cabinet and crushed ice and she would bring me that aluminum cup with crushed ice and a cold drink of whatever kind I was liking at the time and she would have it for me in the car and she would say, I brought you this. Tell me about your day. And looking back, she would run literally every day two errands. While I was in the car, I had something to drink, so I didn't need to get home to get a snack. She had to get out and run in and get the clothing, the cleaners. She had to run in and get a, something from the pharmacy. And I'm telling stories all the way home while we get that done. And then she had accommodated me. And she did all that intuitively, and that's a great idea. Yep. Sixes. I have this theory. I think you you arrive on the planet as a one, two, or six, as a four, five, or nine, and as a three, seven, or eight. Where I see that supported in in our travels and teachings is I find the the largest combination you know any any parent can have any child right but i see the largest number of sixes who had a six parent 
followed closely by ones who had a one parent. Um, so if, if you look at my theory, if you're already born and your reference points outside of you and your parent happens to be that stance, you are going to observe and then absorb what that is. All of that set to say. That's good. Yeah. Like that's good. And if your theory's right, teaching with that eliminates some confusion and some questions like I've, I've have to think about it for a while because we, we might be right it, it what matters is that you know the stance because that's how you're going to parent anyway anyway right that being said there is such an element whether you have a responsive child or a, a dependent child or not that man you as the parent your child if they are not a six they do not are not concerned with the same things you are and you can miss some real um, quality opportunities to connect with your child where they are um, by not requiring that they have um, the alert, the alertedness constantly that you have. Yeah. Do you have an example of that? I taught a woman one time who said, who was, I think she was a seven. She said, uh, you know, it took me to my, late teen years, early adulthood years, she had a six mother to realize that I could just walk into a public bathroom, um, and, and choose a stall and not wait till everyone walked out. Like there's just ways that, that sixes you, you control your home environment. And I think if you can practice letting go of that control a little bit, um, the gifts that come in relation to your child, whatever number they are, will be great. It's fascinating that that's the example you chose because it brought to mind for me, we, you and I fly a lot and we use airport public bathrooms. A lot goes on in there, mm-hmm. a, a lot. And I was thinking when you were talking there are frequently parents I hear with children and I think to myself, that's a six. She's a six. She is a six. And that child is being taught to be afraid of things that they don't necessarily need to be afraid of. Yeah. Yeah. And whether you're a counterphobic leaning, because remember, you're sixes, you're on that spectrum, and you can draw from counterphobic tendencies and phobic. Whichever way you lean, you naturally distrust authority. That's a lot to put on your kid when they're going to school (laughs) with a lot of authority. Yeah, and it might be important if you're a six parent to back up on having your children question everything. Yes. Are you sure? Who said that? Like those kinds of lines, you might want to drop. Yep. And needing to know the why. You need to know the why that that doesn't always work. <laughs> it actually doesn't work in school. It's when you say there, there's a there's needing to know the why in an experiment, <laughs> mm-hmm. but needing to know the why we line up this way is not going to, that's going to beat down some teachers. I also um, never got an answer from the four of you when I asked why about something. Why? <laughs> well, why? I don't know. I just did. Yeah. yeah, that's not a good question, evidently. It doesn't get answered. I was going to say I was smart enough just to say I don't know. Don't tell her why. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> She thinks she we wants don't to need to go she down that she path. Want to yeah. Again, you got to think the conversation yeah. through. Anticipate. If, you, yeah, if you tell that, her why. Yeah, that orientation to time thing is a thing. And to be clear, only two things happen in the men's restroom at a 
<laughs> airport. So. Okay. I'm I, dying can we to just know say number one are. and number two and let it go there because I what stopped, people I, could come up with. Like, so so much is going yeah. on in there. I was like, I don't know, not, not on the men's side. <laughs> Well, to tag on to what you said, Suzanne, a lot of what we talk about when we're doing Enneagram parenting it, it, from the parent perspective is one, managing the emotion that's most easily accessible per triad, and two, be careful not to project so much of your number onto your kids, which is really easy for all of us to do. And you were using six as an example, but it's true for all of them. For a six, I would imagine it's really uncomfortable to know that you have a child that's not a six when you are and to allow them to go through life, not having the same kinds of anxiety that mm-hmm. you do or even caution, just the same kind of caution well, that yeah, you do. Yeah. Because you, you do it that way because that's how you're wired, but there's some damage to be done when you project that onto your kid. That's right. going to, it's not like you think it is to me. And so where does the, where does it stop becoming protecting your child from potential danger and harming your child? by projecting perceived danger onto them when they know that that's not the case. I'm saying more and more about nines that when they are in stress and they're in six, it's good to be worried about a few things. Sure. Oh yeah. And you can't worry about everything. Um, so I guess we can move to sevens because Joel, I was thinking about something that you talked about when we did this at some point and you were telling a story it was about Jolie when she came home from school and um, something had happened. I don't remember exactly what, but she was upset about it. And you talked about how your first reaction was to immediately say, it's okay. It's not as bad as you think it is. And I'm sure there were other circumstances and we're going to let's you, you were doing the things that you do to try to get her to see the optimist point of view and the brighter side of things and then we had sort of talked through after that how Jolie's probably not a seven and you are. And when we aren't allowing our kids to feel hurt or pain and then work through that with them or better yet, allow them to work through it to the extent that they can on their own so that they have the tools available to be able to do that for the rest of their lives, then I think we kind of miss out there. I agree. I, you are a nine and not a seven, but you do have a tendency um, in our home to do that. And you can go ahead and say what our our seventeen year old said to you in the last yeah, year. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. Because um, <laughs> it applies to sevens equally, I think. For sure, because I do it too. Will will call, or sometimes Sam will call more more often. Will when he he was talking about something that's really bothering him, or something that happened that really upset him. My initial reaction is to go, okay. It's going to be okay. This happened for a reason. We'll know the reason, but this is how it was supposed to be. And it's it's not as bad as, as it may per, per, be perceived. And, 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 and Will doesn't want to hear that. My optimism is annoying sometimes that was is what he said. His words. And Dad, so your optimism really is annoying. I have to think about that, right? Like, it's okay <laughs> to see the brighter side of things and it's okay to have a glass a, half full. Thank you. A glass half full attitude. But I'm missing an opportunity to build connection with my four if I'm acting in a way that's a little unrealistic and a little disingenuine, non-genuine, and I don't want that. 
sometimes a better uh, response from my point of view is, yeah, man, that sucks. And I love you. I was literally going to tell you, I think the thing I say more nowadays, (laughs) the more people that are in my life, the more I get to say it is, oh my gosh, that sucks. I'm so sorry. And And that's it. Don't say anything else. And then maybe repeat that after they do some more things. And ah, sounds like you've had a lot of, oh man, that, (laughs) man, that sucks. And then ask some sort of question about what they already said, you know, like, Oh, it was a red shirt. Is that? Yes. Oh, that, yeah. That's, I'm glad you said that. Cause I, I've done that too, where I want that connection. Mm-hmm. And so, but I don't, I don't live in that space very often myself. So I'm thinking, all right, what are some literal ways to stay to, like, I start thinking logically and objectively asking details. <laughs> I don't know the answer to it. I can't fix it, but I want to keep talking about this. Cause I think you do. But I don't know, I don't know the right responses from my point of view. So I'm going to try and see it from yours and take it from there. So that's, that's good language too. And while we're talking about sevens and nines, it's just a a tap on the shoulder. I know we're not to the, the doing or the gut tried yet, but nines, uh, want to avoid conflict and need to bring up doing, but feeling is last for nines, just like it is for threes and sevens and eights. That's, you can't forget that. So it's a it's a real thing, and I one last thing, and then moving on to Eight, nine, the world one, of eights. Yeah. For me, as a seven, what I had to realize was if my kid is a seven, they don't need me to be a seven also with them. So if they come home and there is something, they've they've already got the reframing on board. All the all the things that you listed. I think you have an opportunity from your perspective if they are in a gloom and doom glass half full space unnecessarily maybe or overtly or too much, right? You've got a real opportunity to, to get them to see from a different perspective that may not be that way. It's a and fine line on when that opening has come though. Sure. Well, I think the if you do it too soon, if you do it too soon, they, oh, and if, and then if you don't do it, what he just stood there, mom, he just stood there over and over and said, Oh man, that sucks. Right. <laughs> Well, yeah. I think you just articulated the beauty of knowing the Enneagram. What you're doing is constantly self-reflecting and discerning on when best to use all of the information that you have at your disposal to be the best parent that you can. That's pretty awesome. One of the things I want to add because of something y'all said, and it's for all numbers, and that is I, I think it's important that we realize that children need us to be logical and that there are numbers that lack logic. I'm I'm one of them. I don't have logic on board. So I can't get to the place. And there's a difference in logic and optimism. Yes. Sure. And I can bring feelings and optimism, but I have to really do some work to be logical in my response to emotional problems, my own and other people's. And so that would be a big thing for... And the term I use um, to supplement logical, often we we get to it with Billy because he's so relational. Mm -hmm. You think, oh, it's kind of hard to think, oh, he is logical. But what it is is objective. It's it's objectivity. Instead of subjectivity. Right. So logical, you don't have to go all the way to logical. It's just objective. It's just, man, this is what it is. Like what Joel has in spades is objectivity. (laughs) 
This is what it is. He has no line to subjectivity. It's this is what it is. Well, and in your head, you see a problem and you're trying to think of the fastest ways to solve the problem, right. period. Yeah. Yeah. Whether they're emotional issues, physical, whatever, let's get to the good as quick as we can because why wouldn't we? Eights, I'm going to let y'all go first. You can mic up your kid. <laughs> the good mic up my <laughs> child who's here. Y'all aren't answering. I'm making a business decision. I'm just joking. When we talk about managing the emotions that are most easily there accessible, rates, nines, and ones, that's anger. Yeah. And um, I'll jump ahead to mine first because mine is not passive aggressive. Passive angry is the, the language that Joey uses because it, nines aren't aggressive with anything. <laughs> first time I used passive angry with Joe, he said, where'd you get that? Yeah. I said, your From daughter. Your daughter. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it, it absolutely plays itself out. It's me saying I am going to engage with my kids, but not being fully present to engage with my kids. So this okay. is haphazard, half-hearted interaction that's very confusing because my words are saying yes and my actions are saying no. And they're going, do you really want to be here? And I don't understand. Right. So I've had to really watch myself with that and gotten a little bit better over the years. Eight's anger, as we all know, is it's out and in your face. We've got a pretty, generally speaking, healthy dynamic, the four of us in our home, because things are out and in the open. And we use Enneagram all and the we, time. Yeah, and, and it's so it's depersonalized in that aspect, but the authenticity and the honesty is always there. I mean, everybody's encouraged to say what, what they feel and what they think, and that happens. And that's a good thing. And I have observed times where the intensity and the passion plays itself out angrily and all those good things are still there, the honesty and the transparency, but I've watched it tip the scales from time to time when it became too much, when it was, okay, we all, we got the point. We understand if there was a wrong, we know where and how and our respective roles in it. And there's anything else from here going over to that angry side is only going to uh, be to everyone's detriment. And I, anger is, is definitely part of it. And we got to remember that people think our own family thinks we are angry when we're being intense. And so the language I like to use more often than not is intensity. And with eight specifically, fast processing and intensity mm. because the biggest wall I build between me and my children is my reactiveness because I react with whatever they bring home <laughs> with a combination of intensity and fast processing. So I've already solved it for them and I want them to get there, like be there right then. And then I I'm robbing them of their own, uh, of forging their own path, which is the very thing I want them to do. Yeah, that's interesting because what I was going to say is eights have to watch being dismissive, particularly of three numbers, and being dismissive of their experience. Like, you, you shouldn't let that bother you. That's, that's just silly. Don't do that. Yeah, there's a word that one of the parents and one of our focus groups used because I wrote it down and I use this when we teach. She said, she was an eight. I don't want my children to be annihilated by my anger. Ooh, that's good. 
And annihilated is, is a good word in those moments because all of the good that comes from an eights, passion. fast processing, passion, honesty, integrity, transparency, all of that is clouded by those moments when that anger goes over to the other side. What the kids see then is, whoa, whoa, whoa. I, they go into like this protective right. defense mechanism mode where they don't, they're not listening anymore and no more good is coming from the conversation. So I think just... And even if you've forged a bond with your child, they're less intimidated by it. You're still not giving them any space to process for themselves, which is important. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Okay, ones. Uh, the thing that came to my mind first is, um, again, it's a different form of anger. You know, eights, it's out in the open. Nines, it's passive, angry. And ones um, comes in the form of resentment. And so... I had an interaction um, with a father on in a father-son setting, and he's definitely a one. And I have sat back and observed and watched. Um, we were working on a project. He was extremely skilled and knowledgeable of whatever it is that we were doing. He knew what to do, when to do it. He was quick about it. He did it right all the time. And then I, I watched him try to allow others to do the work well. And, and, and I watched him kind of be a little disappointed at, at every turn because while they were doing it, okay, they weren't doing it as well as he was. And then he had to kind of go in and, and, and fix it a little bit. He got a little angry here, but he backed off. Like I watched him catch himself and then jump back in and then catch himself and then jump back in. And I think that's the life of a one parent yep. all day, every day, mm-hmm. even parents that know the Enneagram and they, they know that they're, they take a perfectionist approach and, and the world is not perfect and there's, um, you know, there's flaws all over the place. So I think it's just a, maybe some practices like a sit or anything that will allow a one parent to go, I can allow this to happen because it's okay, even though it's not my standard and I don't have to project my perfectionist approach onto my kids. The only thing I would add is in all the ways that sixes, because your reference point is outside of you, you try to control the environment for your child. Uh, ones, you got to watch micromanaging your child's experiences. I think that's just a, a very natural state. And I think ones and maybe two parents who each have a one wing. <laughs> Hypothetically. Hypothetically speaking. I know a friend who had this <laughs> yes, situation. Yes, uh-huh. <laughs> I think you have to be very careful about negating what your children did by doing it over or by saying you missed a spot or you did this or you did that. And the thing we haven't said that I want to say is that it, it, it all comes down to knowing enough about yourself and the Enneagram to manage how you see because you're not going to see differently. It's what you do with how you see that is what we got to work on. I worked with a hospital staff years ago, and uh, one of the nurses had been promoted. She was a one, knew she was one. She'd been promoted, and she was in the same um, office space with the people she was managing, like in the same office. Like they were sharing an office with multiple desks. And what I said to her boss was, even if you put her in a broom closet, get her out of the room because she can't not see the way they're doing it. 
So to translate that to our conversation, co-parenting situation, uh, my suggestion is the one should not be the one helping with homework. Agreed. <laughs> well, that brings us up to time, but uh, we'll, yeah, we're going to hop off of here. Kind of a, an abrupt dismount for the people that are watching live. Uh, thank y'all for watching live and joining us. And uh, it'll give us one minute, two minutes, one for our hugs and all the things. And the other minute to look at the calendar and see if we can go and just keep it going. That's what I know. Thank y'all so much. Thank and you. Thank you. If y'all could hear me, I'd, I'd hit the applause button. Applause, yay. yay. Uh, really, thanks so yeah. much. And now's the time. People, if you get it right at the get-go, it changes the whole year. Thank you for listening. Here's a preview of the next episode of the Enneagram Journey. All right, the subject of this question is energy level of an Enneagram 9. And it's a little bit longer, so I'll do my best to read it well. Uh, I'm an Enneagram 9. I'm a mom to two young kids. They're four and one. They're ages. I work full-time as a manager at a software company, and due to my husband's job right now, I'm in a season where a lot of the caretaking and home management tasks fall to me. My plate is full, and I consistently feel pretty disappointed in the amount of energy I have to get the minimum requirements done in a day. I look like a spaced-out zombie by dinner time. I've heard you talk about the low energy level of nines before. Do you have any recommendations for how to make peace with that reality and also somehow tap into more energy or access a different way to get stuff done for me and my family in a healthy way? You cannot get it done unless you write it down and prioritize it or have your husband help you prioritize it. And uh, then you have to be honest and say, I think I can do this and this and this, but I can't do this. I can't do this too. So then you are from a thinking position, boundaried in a healthy way, saying to your partner in life, I can handle dinner. I can't handle breakfast. What should we do instead of what should I do? And the big projects that have to get done, you prioritize which ones have to be done during this season. And if they don't have to be done, take them off the list. And 